If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, you can now support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Backers get lots of benefits, including an ad-free version of the podcasts, attractive mugs and t-shirts, and an opportunity to watch our live stream, which was last night with Dorian Linsky, Naomi Smith, Alexandre, and me. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast and find out how you can keep us in rude health. Today, I'm going to be tackling something that's affected my life in lots of ways since I was diagnosed with it in 2008, multiple sclerosis. It's a disease of the nervous system. More than 100,000 people in the UK suffer from it, and it shows up in many, many ways, from being unable to walk to problems with vision, concentration, and some symptoms I wouldn't even mention to close friends. In fact, this is the first time I've talked about it publicly, so bear with me. And with me to do that is David Martin, CEO of the Multiple Sclerosis Trust. David, hello. Roz, hi. David, most people with MS are probably no more likely to catch COVID-19 than anyone else, um, except that many of us take drugs to suppress the immune system, which changes everything. Um, I take one of them and I was initially told I had to shield, but very luckily for me, my consultant looked at blood test results from the previous drug course and said it wasn't absolutely necessary for me to do so which I was incredibly grateful for. But many otherwise healthy people with MS were told in March that they had to shield. And I don't think people always realise what this means. It's like lockdown times 10. Tell us a little bit about what shielding means. Well, for many people, Roz, and I'm sure you've got a personal experience as well, people were basically told to hide away. It means not leaving your home at all, not allowing others into your home socially distancing from other household members that's sleeping apart being scrupulous about cleaning and hygiene not just about washing hands i think it means a huge amount of personal sacrifice and it really isn't something that a lot of people can undergo lightly it's very very stressful no in fact the advice is if you live with other people to actually stay in the one room and only go into the bathroom and then clean the bathroom after you and that's it you're not literally not allowed to leave one room which Three or four months is is absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it's just unreal. It is so stressful. And and I think some of the shielding, I think the government have done the best, but some of the shielding advice has been, well, should we say politely at best unclear. There's been a a new survey that's come out this week from the Neurological Alliance. 49% of people who responded to that said that shielding advice was unclear. When you've got so much impact, so much threat, so many lives being interrupted, then it's a real challenge. 
And we found with our phone line at the MS Trust, we, we were just getting overwhelmed with the number of calls from people who were frightened, they were scared, they just wanted relevant and real world information. And what sort of things have you been hearing from those people who've contacted you about how they've managed this situation or, or indeed not managed it? Well, no, I think not managing is a case in point. I think because people were so nervous, they they observed the shielding absolutely. I think there was a, a little bit of a frustration, shall we say, to people who were giving us a ring and sort of contacting us by email, that, that so many people you know, in, in the general population were moaning about the shielding. Uh, some people had a, a degree of choice, could go out for maybe a daily walk. But, you know, so I've got a colleague in particular who uh, lives with multiple sclerosis. She was able to go out for one hour a week. Uh, she didn't have a garden. She had a new flat. She was struggling because her partner was working in a school as well. It's really, really hard. So that, that general day-to-day is hard. And then you've got the challenge where there's been, you know, a lot of the supports, the treatments have been uh, changed during COVID-19. So I absolutely get that the NHS had to make COVID uh, treatment of COVID-19 uh, a priority but infusions for people living with MS have been cancelled or delayed, consultations postponed, and specialist clinics for things, issues like pain, continence and mobility have all been stopped. Uh, and then on the other side, you've got people who are newly diagnosed with MS. So, uh, Journey, you started uh, about 2008, I think you said, Ros. A lot of people now are being diagnosed. And if you think the, 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 the numbers are about 130 a week on average, the diagnosis is taking place. But those disease-modifying drugs, which effectively dampen down the multiple sclerosis, are not being doled out at the moment. So there's a big pause being pressed. So that means people are suffering more than they need to. And there's a bigger chance of irreversible disability happening as well. So some big concerns at the moment. Yes, because when you're first diagnosed, it's absolutely terrifying. And you want to do everything you can and to do it as quickly as possible. And if that can't happen, then that must be, that must be terrifying. Yeah, and there are you know there are fourteen disease modifying drugs, and some are stronger than others at the moment. When people are first diagnosed, the shock, the anxiety, indeed the depression that can take place, it, it is significant. It's you know so the number of people I've spoken to have told me time and time again that was the worst moment of their life. But then people start to look around. They go to Doctor Google. They talk to organisations like the MS Trust. They want to know that what can be done. Uh, and quite often people will look at you know sort of what are the best drugs for them. But simply if you're being told you've got this disease, you're going to have it for the rest of your life, it's going to impact adversely on your life, but there are drugs available, but you can't have them. It just seems it seems really unfair. So we know that lots of communities stepped up and helped with delivering food to people and local councils arranged food parcels. But was that, do you think, enough? And in particular, in terms of the mental toll that people were suffering locked in a room sometimes for months? Yeah, I, I think there's been a real rise in anxiety and stress, isolation and loneliness during the last three or four months. If you think the starting point is between a third and two thirds of people with multiple sclerosis uh, suffer from depression, and anxiety at some point during their MS journey. So that has, that figure's gone north. It's it's increased significantly. Uh, so that survey that came out this week, 19% of respondents saying they felt lonely. One in 10 felt hopeless. That's just absolutely shocking, isn't it, really? So, you know, people are frightened, people are nervous. They're not sure what's going to happen. So everybody was worried about the uncertainty of what was going to happen. 
But the reality is that you had so many people, these 140,000 people living with multiple sclerosis, and not only was it uncertainty, but a potential impact on their lives if they stepped out the front door. The community stepped up by and large, yes. They, they took out uh, a lot of the, they smoothed out some of the bumps, um, leaving people who were shielding or vulnerable, um, uh, perhaps a little better in the, um, with the support that they were being given. But what it didn't do was take away that uncertainty. And that was the challenge I think the whole MS community had. And are you still see, seeing now delays with treatment where people are struggling to get the, get the drugs they need? Absolutely. Those, the treatments haven't restarted. So most of the MS clinics up and down the country have still pressed pause. So some of the staff, some of the MS staff have been redeployed to support people with COVID-19. Now, some of those staff have been redeployed back, whether it's the neurologists, the MS nurses, et cetera, et cetera. But what we've been hearing time and again is if people have been diagnosed and not been given the disease-modifying drug treatments, the waiting lists in the multiple sclerosis sector are already significant. Those waiting lists have got longer and longer and longer. So they'll be extended beyond Christmas. So I think there's a challenge for neurologists up and down the country to think about what they can do to reduce those waiting lists in 2021 and beyond with or without COVID-19. Yeah, they are already very long. I remember all the uh, whenever I've had physio for MS, which was in, was incredibly useful when I've had it. It's been a nine month wait, and that's in in better times, uh, and it's got no shorter as time has gone oh, gone on. What has yeah. it been like for the carers of people with MS? Because some people clearly need need carers to help them, and they too will have been quite isolated because they won't have had any, uh, or at least not as much support as Absolutely. they want. And on our experiences, the carers, the families and friends of people with MS are not considered at all. So they've had to make sacrifices and live with their knowledge. And it's probably a guilty, yeah, guilty knowledge really, that their actions could put their loved ones at risk. So they've had to make some difficult decisions. I've heard of people who actually moved out to protect their partner. And, you know, I, I know somebody else um, whose who's partner, as I say, is a teacher. Um, he's been able to stay off school, so his school has been fantastic, but he's been told come September he's got to go back to school. So my friend lives in the southeast of England, and she's probably going to have to move back to her family, but her family are in Scotland simply because of her multiple sclerosis. So there's a challenge, there's a guilt factor on carers, and there's simply not enough support for them in this day and age. And what's the mental state of some of these people who who your your charity has been talking to after perhaps so long alone i mean i know that the the statistics sort of tell a story in terms of people feeling utterly hopeless but can you give us a bit more uh give us a sense of a, a little bit more what it's what it's like for these people uh, they who are who are struggling to keep their mental mental state together yeah absolutely well in in what you would call normal times there's not enough emotional support psychological support for people with living with ms anyway so all of a sudden that you know the, the dial has been turned up to 11 and there's no additional support being put in place so we've had people ringing our inquiry line and we we've had a record number of calls it it spiked massively in march and april it's gone down a bit now but it's still high and when you've ring, got people ringing up and simply, as soon as they get through on the phone, they're in tears because they just don't know what to do. They don't know how to cope. Uh, and that's a real challenge. So I think what's going to happen is as we move towards this so-called new normal, 
I think you're going to have a lot of people who have this physical illness, but also will be further psychologically damaged. And I think there's going to be a lot of patching up that needs to be done. There is a counselling service in the MS community. So um, one of our sister charities, an organisation called MS UK, runs a counselling service. Normally that's run through, um, it's a phone service, a phone support service. But they've started providing that service through Zoom over the last uh, month or two, which is great news to hear. Now, I, I thought I might mention it today. I checked with the CEO of MS UK this morning because I thought they'd be overwhelmed. Actually, they've got capacity on that service now. So I've got no interest at all, and apart from the fact that I know about the service. So I hope that more people with multiple sclerosis can get in touch, start to use that service, so at least there'll be a few less people damaged going forward. Now that's good to hear anyway. Thinking about what you've just called the new normal, there are lots of things about it that are harder for disabled people to adapt to. Um, queuing is is one thing, for example. Queuing is something that I've always uh, or often found very hard. Yeah. And we're told to walk or cycle instead of using public transport. Um, but that often isn't, uh, isn't possible if you're physically disabled. So what does that mean if you need to go back to work? Well... In the world of work, I think this is one of the single biggest challenges for those people living with multiple sclerosis at the moment. And it's it's certainly the, it's the highest number of phone calls that we're getting at the moment. People are concerned that there's going to be pressure on them to go back to work sooner rather than later. And as much as precautions are being taken, risk assessments have been made. But the reality is for many people with multiple sclerosis, the risk for them will be much, much higher so we're encouraging employers around the country to be more flexible, to be supportive and do like the MS Trust is doing. So we've got two people who work for us who live with MS at the moment. And what we're saying to them is we're going to allow them to continue working at home for as long as they need to do. And the reality of that is until a vaccine comes along, I'm not sure it's going to be safe for many people with multiple sclerosis to go back to the average workplace. The Multiple Sclerosis Trust your income has has dropped as a charity. Um, tell us why it's gone down in the last few months. Yeah, well, in, in a sense, the last few months of COVID-19 have been the perfect storm for us as a charity and probably were not untypical. So we've had a record demand for some of our services, in particular our helpline, where people ring up for emotional support, information and advice. But our fundraising has taken an absolute dive. So we don't get a penny from the government to the NHS and we accept that. So we're absolutely reliant on our fundraising. But and most of that is done in the community, whether it's runs, it's cake sales and skydives. Just on one day alone. So when the London Marathon was postponed on that day, we should have brought in £165,000. That's a huge amount of our income. It was postponed until October. The reality is I think it will be postponed again. So there's another black hole in our account. So at the moment, we can envisage a, a gap for what we're bringing in and what we need to spend and the money that we've got of about a third of a million pounds. So I think we're probably typical of a lot of charities in the sense we've got gaps and we've gonna have to, we're going to have to take some hard decisions about how we keep ourselves going into next year. And you've had to make redundancies and furlough people, haven't you? And that seems scarcely believable at a time when charities like yours are needed more than ever. Yeah, it, it, it just seems fundamentally wrong. And I had a lot of waking nights worrying and thinking about, you know, was that the right thing to do for you know small to medium sized charity? But lots of charities are challenged at the moment and we're one of them. You know, our situation now is, is serious, but 
I, I'm able to tell you it is stable. So we prioritise the things that, that were being prioritised by people living with MS, so our helpline in particular because of that record demand. But we had to pause some of our other activities, which weren't so critical, like the, um, the appointment of new MS nurses into the NHS. And yeah, we've had to make some difficult decisions. We've, we're losing a handful of staff. We're currently going through a consultation period at the moment. It's something I'd rather not have to do. And everybody in the charity from top to bottom is 20, taking a 20% salary cut. But the reality is we do some great things as a charity. We do some things that no other MS charity does. So I think it's really important that we're still alive this ne time next year and beyond. So by making the sacrifices now, hopefully that should guarantee that we'll be around in 12 months and then after that too. Has the government actually done anything in particular for charities? Um, it has in the sense it puts, you know, there was um, £750 million of additional money that was put in. So from, you know, overall the government has done something. And, you know, and certainly when I talked to my dad, he, you know, my dad thought, well, there's your salvation then. But the reality is, reality is there, is a lot, there are a lot of charities up and down this country. Sounds a lot of money, but when you spread it out, it's very thinly spread. And, and I know charities who tried and tried again, they haven't got the money. We made probably about half a dozen applications to different pots. And finally, this time last week, we got about £10,000. Now, every little helps. You know, we're a medium-sized charity, but that's less than 10% of one month's wage bill. So it's better than nothing, but we could have done with much, much more. And that's why jobs are likely to go at the MS Trust. Is it frustrating to see charities that don't aren't particularly affected in terms of their work and their demand for their services, like the RSPB, for example? Is it frustrating to see them treated on the same basis as you are when, when you're, you have people who need you particularly badly in this pandemic i've been personally challenged by you know i've seen the focus in particular on on medical charities charities supporting the nhs over the last three or four months and i can absolutely understand that every charity virtually every charity has been challenged some 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 charities have savings some don't so everybody has had an emergency appeal and certainly we raised more money from an emergency appeal than we've ever raised in one appeal before but that was forty thousand pounds that's not going to bridge our gap so we've had to do some, we take some radical measures. So I, I, I think what I get is that every charity has had to do what it's had to do to stay alive, to keep kicking on. But sometimes when you see some of those charities with emergency appeals, when you know that they've got millions and millions of pounds in the bank, that's sometimes quite hard to swallow. What could they do to help you in particular? What would you like to see the government doing? I think furloughing has been a godsend. It's been absolutely wonderful. I didn't want to furlough. Some of my staff, or just over half of our staff, were furloughed. And we're probably, again, not untypical in the charity sector. But I think the challenge is, as furloughing starts to taper down in September, October, we're going to find that quite hard. We've got no spare cash. And we're going to have to start to contribute. So, you know, I was hoping, I had my fingers crossed when the uh, the Chancellor made his recent statement that so, there might be some additional money in putting, particularly for charities that are like ours that are so vital at the moment, that maybe that tapering would continue through to the end of the year. But that's not happened. So my concern is there will be increased pressure on us because the neurology services are going to find it hard to reboot and restart. So those waiting lists are growing. People are being diagnosed and not giving, being given the drug. So actually, there's going to be more requirement than ever on my sort of charity. And we're getting stretched thinner 
and thinner and thinner. And we just need to make sure we just don't go ping and the support disappears completely. And what can the rest of us do? I mean, should we be getting using our £10 Monday to Wednesday meal rebate from uh, Rishi Sunak? Should we just try and ping that the way of a charity like yours that really needs it? I haven't seen it. I'd, lo- I'd love that to be able to happen. But I just think maybe, I think we all feel like we need a bit of a night out at the moment, didn't we? A- even if it's sort of a, a £10 start. I guess the one thing, and I had this conversation with my, my chair very early on in the lockdown. A lot of people support charities, but they do it tentatively. Maybe they support a friend who's running a marathon or going off and doing something, you know, walking on the Great Wall of China. What I'd say to people is if you do support a charity and if you support them during the lockdown, thanks very much. You know, we all appreciate it. But if you do support a charity, you're going to support it once this year. Do it sooner rather than later because there's a lot of charities like the MS Trust that are desperate for money now. There are some charities, we're fine, but I know some charities that are going to go to the wall before Christmas. So if you're going to put in your 10, your 20, your 50 pounds, do it sooner rather than later when it's absolutely needed. David, thanks so much for talking to me. Listeners, thank you. Listeners, there's another Bunker Daily on Monday. And don't forget, you can watch our last live stream if you sign up as a Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.